Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us here at Midweek and letting us be part of your day. Here's what we're going to be talking about. We're going to talk with the Senior Vice President for the U.S.-China Business Council, Aaron Ennis, get an update on U.S.-China trade talks. Following the G20 summit, there was a lot of optimism. Not much happening since then, although we hear about some phone calls between the two sides, and we'll get into all that and what we might expect with Aaron Ennis. We'll hear a little bit later. Steve Nicholson with Robo Agri Finance will join us. We're going to talk markets and market outlook. And we're going to talk with University of Illinois ag economist Scott Irwin about this interesting battle going on uh, between the oil industry and the ethanol biofuels industry. And in the middle, you have EPA and USDA. We recently had some GOP senators saying they wanted Secretary Purdue to stay out of this uh, whole issue of granting small refinery exemptions. The oil industry now saying they want USDA completely out of it, as you might expect. We're going to talk about that battle with University of Illinois ag economist Scott Irwin coming up later in today's program. But right now, we're going to get an update on the uh, wheat harvest going on in Kansas. Joining us now is the CEO of Kansas Wheat Growers, Justin Gilpin. And Justin, I know you're traveling. Hopefully the, the cell signal will be good enough. Uh, where are you at this time as you're making your way around the state? Well, actually, yeah, heading out heading out west right now. As, uh, we've been dodging some storms uh, that have been going through that uh, delayed harvest a, a little bit, but uh, sometimes self-service gets a little sketchy. So I apologize in advance to you and your listeners, Mike. No, it sounds good right now. Uh, we know there's a lot of flooding problems in Nebraska. What is your weather situation across Kansas? Well, what's really hurt us now is where we're at with harvest. Is uh, you know we got into the, the area of the state out west where uh, the crop really hadn't been underwater like the central part of the state, so we're really getting into some good yields. Uh, but what happened was we've had lines of thunderstorms that have kind of built up over the last couple of days over uh, through the weekend that. That really uh, dumped some heavy downpours in areas. and uh, It's going to keep combines out of the field for a couple days in those areas that got heavy rains. And then we had storms that rolled through the north-central part of the state uh, actually just this morning. That's going to delay harvest in that north-central part of Kansas, south-central uh, part of Nebraska. So up until these storms rolled in, uh, things were moving right along, weren't they, as far as harvest? And uh, uh, tell us about what you're seeing and hearing as far as yields. Well, you know, you're exactly right. We did uh, we we had a delayed harvest. Uh, certainly, the theme has been uh, all of the rains and the wet weather that we had that prolonged uh, the maturity of the wheat crop in the central part of the state. But we did get that open window uh, kind of at the end of June through the holiday Fourth uh, of July holiday, where combines were really able to get going out in the fields and and uh, especially in that southwest corner. Uh, harvest really progressed pretty rapidly. We got into some really good yields. Um, you know, it, it was the tale of two crops. If you think about the central part of the state that were hurt by all those rains where you had, oh, more like average bushel yields, kind of 30 to 50 bushel type yields. And then you had, uh, as you got out further west, we actually started getting into some of those fields that actually benefited from the cool weather and the wet can, uh, wet uh, moisture that, they, that the crop had received. And 
actually we're getting 60 to 70 bushel type yields, and that's almost uh, double what some of those dry land acres would normally see in a in a normal year. What about protein content? Well, with those higher protein, with those higher yields, we're certainly seeing uh, proteins down down uh, in those areas. You know, it's been uh, there's pockets of protein uh, that are showing up, kind of the 12s and 12s and a half. But on general, uh, you're seeing over 10 and a half to 11 and a half type proteins. You know, that's uh, something you and I had the opportunity to talk about uh, a couple weeks ago, Mike, as we started seeing these higher yields. That it's certainly going to be a year that producers are going to want to know what they have with their crop because as this crop gets put away and put it in the bin. It uh, looks like that type of year, that 1150 uh, and higher type proteins are, in winter wheat are going to have some extra value. And for a spring wheat producer up in the northern plains, certainly something they want to be keeping an eye on, on on that protein market where they might be able to help add a little extra value to their crop. And as I we talked before, you hadn't seen too many disease uh, problems out there. Anything popped up lately? You know, knock on wood, Mike, we're still doing pretty good. You know, there was a lot of reports of a head scab that was in the field, but uh, as of now, uh, that's been more of a yield issue than a, than a quality issue where uh, that head scab just didn't allow that current, uh, that head to develop those kernels and the smaller shriveled kernels that maybe did develop, they're getting kind of blown out the back of the combine. So we haven't had any issues with that crop getting delivered to the elevator at this point, which is, which is a good thing. You know, there was uh, in the central part of Oklahoma with all the rains that came right during their harvest, there, there were some small pockets reported of some sprout damage and lower test weights that uh, where they just couldn't get in and get that, that crop out of the field and got rained on. But uh, overall, for the most part, we're seeing, uh, seeing a really good uh, average test weight for the state of Kansas coming in. Eastern Colorado's coming in with really good test weights, again, a little bit lower protein. Uh, and it's going to be an interesting dynamic shaping up as the harvest moves into Nebraska and South Dakota because well, one thing you're starting to see is that Nebraska crop has been a little bit delayed, uh, but both in the Nebraska and South Dakota are starting to mature pretty rapidly, and I think you're going to have a crop hitting out all at the same time where South Dakota and Nebraska will both be ready to harvest here in, a, in about two weeks, uh, and there'll be a challenge for custom cutters on decisions to make where they're going to go. Mm-hmm. Now, th- this rain, these storms that have moved through, uh, are you're getting right now in parts of Kansas, uh, is it just uh, too wet? Is that the delay, or is there any damage coming with these storms? Well, there's, you know, with these storms, you're, we're still, we had two-inch hail that came through in some areas, mm-hmm. and you had uh, 60 and 70-mile-an-hour winds that, that laid some wheat over, and, and uh, you know, just consistent with the storms we've had this spring and the first part of the summer, Mike, where, you know, it's we've had area, areas that get just these heavy downpours. You know, there's reports this morning of areas that got six to eight inches of rain in that north-central part of the state. Over the weekend, we had an area out in Kismet, Kansas, western Kansas, that got five inches of rain. And, and so for those those local heavy downpours, that's going to keep combines out of the field and, and probably going to, and where we got that hail and lake some wheat over, you're going to probably going to be losing losing some, some acres to harvest and some, some bushels, and which is frustrating because you're right at that finish line wanting to get that crop out of the field and to, to have that happen right now, uh, it's, a, it's certainly a disappointment to, to any wheat farmer that happens to. Yeah, frustrating has kind of been a key word for many in agriculture this year. That's, that's for sure. All right, Justin, thank you for the update, and uh, we'll check back in with you uh, uh, in the near future and uh, start getting a look at how this is, harvest is wrapping up. But thanks for the 
for the overview of how things are going. Yeah, Mike, always good to talk to you, and I look forward to catching up with you once we get a little bit further and get this harvest put away. And Thanks again for everything you do for agriculture. All right, thank you. Justin Gilpin, he is CEO of the Kansas Wheat Growers with an update on the Kansas wheat harvest and much of it in delay right now on hold uh, with those storms that have been moving through. Well, we've been kind of on hold with talks with China, but uh, there's some conversations going on. Let's get an update on that next from Aaron Ennis, Senior Vice President of the U.S.-China Business Council. That's next here on AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, there was a study released recently comparing organic milk with conventional milk, and the study says and claims that uh, the non-organic milk tested positive for pesticides, illegal antibiotics, and growth hormones. When I get reaction to that, from the dairy industry. Joining us now is the Senior Vice President, Regulatory Affairs for the National Milk Producers Federation, Clay Detlefson. Clay, thank you for joining us. Uh, What do you make of this study? At this point, we don't buy it. We don't believe that the results that have been provided are accurate. They fly in the face of government test results that have been going on for years and years and years. And it's just very unusual that these results could be valid. So we're questioning the methodology and the proficiency of the folks that uh, perform the testing. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. I spend a lot of time in the garage, but even more time in the rain, sleet, and mud. In 95, I helped tow your moving trailer. In 05, I helped you get out of a ditch. Yeah, I know I'm a bit rusty, and sadly in 09, it was sparks from me, your handy chains, dragging behind your truck that accidentally started a wildfire. Sparks from dragging chains can start a wildfire. Spark a change, not a wildfire. Visit SmokeyBear.com. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Only you can prevent wildfires. My mom's a breast cancer survivor. The United Breast Cancer Foundation saved her life. Their free breast cancer exam caught the cancer early, and it saved her life. But now the foundation needs your help so they can continue offering free or low-cost breast screening exams, saving more women's lives. Help them by donating your car, whether it's running or not. They'll provide fast, free 24-hour pickup, and you receive a charitable tax deduction, plus the great feeling you'll get knowing your donated car is going to help save more lives. Just call 800-745-3327 to set the wheels in motion. They take cars, trucks, vans, and SUVs, running or not. 
Call 800-745-3327. The United Breast Cancer Foundation needs your help, and your donation could literally save women's lives, helping them catch breast cancer early like they did with my mom. Donate today. 800-745-3327. 800-745-3327. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, there is a lot of optimism after the G20 summit that something, uh, you know, the talks would really get going again between the U.S. and China. There hasn't been much happening. There was a phone call between top trade officials uh, yesterday, but still no word on when the next meeting in person might be. Meanwhile, Larry Kudlow the president's chief economic advisor saying yesterday that the U.S. and China might never reach an agreement because the remaining issues are so complex, saying when you get down to the last 10 percent, it's tough. He, that, those were some of his comments in a CNBC event in Washington. Uh, let's uh, talk about it with the senior vice president for the U.S.-China Business Council. I can say that for a little while longer. Aaron Ennis joins us again. Aaron, thanks for being with us. So, uh, are you less optimistic, or is this kind of what you thought would happen after the G20 summit? Uh, hi, Mike. Um, I'm, I'm about the same level of optimistic that I've been probably every time you and I have spoken. I think that where we are right now is pretty predictable. What we suspect the call yesterday was about was probably seeking to answer two questions, the first one being, where are we starting the negotiations again? The U.S. and China left with very different impressions about what the last offer was. And so where they start is certainly an important thing to clarify before they start negotiating again. And the second point, um, there were significant differences between how the U.S. and China characterize potential purchases of ag products in particular. So we suspect that getting some clarity on where they are on that one and whether large purchases are on the horizon, whether this is something that is goes beyond agriculture or not, is something that's going to need to be clarified as well. All of that, I think, is a good place to start. I think Mr. Kudlow is right. The, the last 10% is going to be difficult. But as I've said for months, I think that the, these things are bridgeable if two sides are looking for a deal. Do you think it's possible, though, or if, if possible, how likely, that the two sides never reach an agreement or really never have a formal deal done? I, I hope not. And, and frankly, if you go into a negotiation thinking you're never going to come to an agreement, then what's the, even the point of sitting down? Just accept that the, where you are is where you're going to stay. Our, we have been uh, encouraging both governments for a while to look at what they've got, lock in as much as they can, in that needs to include a plan of action on the tariffs, not just that the U.S. has put into place, but that China has put into place on U.S. exports, including agriculture and all kinds of other products. But lock in what you've got and then narrow the list of the things that remain outstanding. It would be a real shame to lose the progress that's been made because they couldn't get 100% of everything immediately, whereas you know we've been negotiating some of these issues with the Chinese, and I think that progress has been made that would be meaningful. So... Yeah, if that progress that's been made that we don't always hear about or know about, is there the fear then of losing that progress that has been made? I, I think 
there is certainly at least there should be some concern on that front. I think there's there's two things. I, I somehow doubt that for the the easy things or the things that China knows are in its own interest that um, that they might choose to not pursue them. I mean, if China knows that making uh, reforms to the protection of intellectual property rights is something they should do, then I think they'll probably continue doing them. And so whether it you know this is kind of that classic. Um, causation or correlation issue. Is it because the U.S. pushed them on it, or is it because China was going to do it anyway? You might never know. I think the risk really is that China may make some changes, but without an ongoing negotiation, without that um, pushing from not just the United States but other trading partners, they probably won't go as far as they would in making the kinds of changes that we want. So you'd get good but not great or sufficient but not ambitious in this. And that, frankly, is why having an ongoing negotiation continues to be important. But again, locking in as much as you can and then resetting the bar and pushing them even further. We've talked about this before in our conversations about what we might expect long-term, how this changes things. What are are we seeing from China? Uh, Are they buying elsewhere? Are they building relationships elsewhere that the U.S. should be concerned about that would mean we might not get back what we had, let alone get more. So what we've been hearing from Chinese officials in recent weeks is that they certainly still value American exports, so they haven't fully replaced uh, many of the product categories. In agriculture in particular, though, we've had a variety of Chinese officials just remind us that demand for these products is one that is cyclical, and um, China actually had a pretty good uh, crop year in some of the categories that they've been buying imports on. So at this point, there are certainly some product categories where Chinese officials are indicating China might be willing to buy more, but essentially would just have to put them into warehouses rather than something that would be consumed immediately. I don't think that overall consumption in China is down. The numbers on that front still seem to be good. So even though it might not be something that clears the decks of all of the stockpiles that the U.S. has at this point, the demand for product isn't decreasing in China. And so the U.S., hopefully, if we get to a point where the Chinese retaliatory tariffs are down, the U.S. and China are on a a better footing, the, the purchases will resume and hopefully in volumes that at least match what they had been in the past. We're talking with Aaron Ennis, Senior Vice President, U.S.-China Business Council. Beyond agriculture, Aaron, what impact is this trade war having on other segments of the U.S. economy? So right now we are kind of beginning to see the impact on some consumer products. The last list of tariffs that the U.S. put into place included a variety of products that are little that had smaller profit margins on them, but were more consumer facing. Uh, the, the tariffs on the final uh, set of products that were almost all consumer goods is at least right now on hold, and so we won't see probably an impact on back to school prices. But we are anticipating seeing some price increases on many of these areas. Areas, and it will be impacted by how these negotiations go. Many um, manufacturers told us and, and importers of, of other types of goods told us that they were able to negotiate short-term deals to with their suppliers to either split the cost of what the tariffs are or to at least kind of agree on a reduction in what the cost uh, of other associated aspects might be so that the, there wasn't a significant loss uh, for both sides on it. 
But those were short-term deals, and so the longer the tariff battles go on, the more both sides are going to have to, companies in these kinds of scenarios are going to have to consider whether this is a long-term sustainable deal or if prices are going to have to go up. President Trump often talks about, well, one, how much he likes tariffs uh, as a negotiating tool, and two, the money we receive from those tariffs. Can you uh, shed a little light on that? Uh, where, How much of that money you know, are we really seeing? How, where does it go? How is it used? Things like that. Well, uh, the, 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 the basic thing that everyone should keep in mind about tariffs is tariffs aren't paid by the person who's selling it to a country. They're paid by the person who's buying in the country. So it's really the purchasers of imported products from China and from any other country, for instance, that we've got steel and aluminum tariffs on that are having to deal with those prices. Um, whether that money comes into our coffers and makes a significant difference, you know, this really starts getting into a difference of opinion. I would make the argument that... We might have an increase in tariff revenue. It's essentially taxes, so it goes into the U.S. Treasury. But you are seeing a lost market opportunity for the companies that would have otherwise been exporting U.S. products and, and making a profit um, that's resulting in probably a reduction of what income and business taxes might be. Where these things all balance out, I'm not an economist, so I won't leave it, I'll leave it at that, but just note that it's not a simple equation. And as we see in agriculture, and you were talking about this earlier, uh, yeah, you, you wind up paying uh, some type of a payment to farmers to try to make up for some of their losses. And meanwhile, uh, your stocks of commodities, say like soybeans, continue to grow. So it's a, there's a short-term and there's a long-term story here. Right. And the goal of all of this um, that we've heard consistently from the administration, and then I think all of us can agree with, is to get meaningful chains in China, to make sure that not just ag products have fair access and that the tariffs are gone, but that those longer-term structural issues that ensure that intellectual property rights are better protected and that American companies and other foreign companies are treated fairly in the country. Those are all good goals. Um, hopefully this is just a short-term situation, and these negotiations that are resuming will get us back on track to lock in some of that progress and have a plan of action to reduce and eliminate those tariffs. Well, Aaron, I know you're moving on to a new position. We wish you the best, and really thank you. You have given us great insight, great perspective on this whole situation with China this past year. Thank you so much, and, and the very best to you in your new opportunity. Thank you, Mike. It has been a pleasure. Take care. Aaron Ennis, Senior Vice President for now of the U.S.-China Business Council. She will be moving on to a new position, and we wish her um, well. She has given us a, a look into kind of behind the scenes on a lot of this back and forth between the U.S. and China, what she's hearing from her contacts, and we appreciate it. All right, so the markets look at all this, and, of course, at the ongoing crop conditions. We have uh, some numbers coming out tomorrow that people are anticipating. We'll talk about it next with Steve Nicholson with Robo AgriFinance. Stay with us here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Recently on Adams on Agriculture... Pressure on agriculture, on environmental issues, has been growing the last several years and looks to probably intensify in the years to come. Let's talk about that with the CEO for the Center for Food Integrity, Charlie Arnott. Charlie, thank you for being with us. I know it certainly looks like the public at large and maybe some policymakers uh, 
don't feel that agriculture is doing enough when it comes to reducing uh, its carbon footprint. Now, agriculture has a good story to tell, but there seems to be a, kind of a, a disconnect here right now. Well, you're exactly right, Mike, and there are a number of things that are that are at play here kind of simultaneously. It's the change in consumer attitudes, consumer, uh, consumer purchasing behavior, the emergence and the growth of the purpose-driven consumer. We're also seeing that lack of appreciation and awareness of what actually happens on farms, the bias against size and scale of agriculture, and a number of other factors. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. Time now for a market check here on Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. New crop November soybeans chalked up some pretty good gains on Tuesday in a bullish outside day. New support forming at Tuesday's low at 890 and a quarter. The short-term trend, according to the Wire Talk, remains a bit weak in a correction phase. We are stable so far early on this Wednesday in soybean to the day. New crop November near unchanged, down just a half cent, 903 and three quarters. Corn December down three at 434 and a quarter. Losses continue in the wheat futures. Some harvest disruptions being seen in Southern Plains wheat areas this week. The harvest said to be nearing completion in Oklahoma and in Texas. Kansas City wheat September down four and three quarters at 434 and a half. Chicago wheat September down three and a quarter at 499 and a half an hour into Wednesday's trade. Minneapolis spring wheat September down just a half cent at 526. For livestock at the Merck and lean hog futures after the sharp advances of Tuesday, more positive signs on this Wednesday. August lean hogs up a dollar fifty seven at eighty sixty five. October up a buck and a half at seventy two fifty. In live cattle futures, we're around a half dollar lower. August down fifty cents at one oh seven sixty two. October down sixty two at one oh eight sixty seven. Cash cattle bids and asking prices not well established so far. Some asking prices being seen around one thirteen to one fourteen in the south, one eighty four plus on a dress basis in the north. In feeder cattle, the August contract down 67 at 142.20. The Dow is up 154, S&P up 18, crude up a buck 62. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. 180 over 111 and I had a stroke. When I woke up, I couldn't speak or walk. 145 over 92, and then I had a heart attack. 182 over 100, and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke. Everything changed. It felt like my life was over. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from invisible or silent. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. If I would have followed a treatment plan, I would not be in this situation. 180 over 110, and I had a stroke. And I'm 33, so I never see this coming. If you've come off your treatment plan, get back on it. Or talk with your doctor to create an exercise, diet, and medication plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org. Head to toe, everything's changed. Head to toe. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. 
There has been a lot of speculation of whether or not there would be a vote on USMCA before the August recess. Well, it looks like we have an answer to that. As the story is out there now that the White House plans to send USMCA to Congress after September 1st, which would set up a vote on the trade deal before the end of the calendar year, but uh, not before the August recess. So we'll keep an eye on that, but it looks like that's the plan now by the administration to wait till after September 1 to send the USMCA deal to Congress for a vote. Well, let's talk markets. Grain and oil seeds analyst for Robo AgriFinance, Steve Nicholson, is with us. Steve, how are you? I'm okay. A little hot in St. Louis today, um, but we need the we need the heat for the crops, so I think it's all good. Yeah, we've got a situation. There's storms uh, delaying harvest, yeah. wheat harvest in Kansas. There's flooding in Nebraska. But uh, in the heart of the Midwest, uh, this hot, humid weather has been very good for crops, and well, I tell you, around me here in, in West Central Illinois, uh, there's been a big jump in these crops in the last week to 10 days. Yeah, I was in Iowa last weekend over the 4th of July weekend, and I will tell you, I was I was in through southeast Iowa and uh, quite a bit around central Iowa, and the crops there looked, in my view, looked really good. Um, it's what I would expect to see that time of year. I was expecting to see a little more variability and a little more, prevent plant acres in southeastern Iowa, and it, frankly, I was surprised at what I saw. Now, I will go back there in a week uh, or two weeks and see, you know, kind of get a little broader view of Iowa, but I, it looks good. Uh, the corn looks healthy. It doesn't look anemic like it had early on in parts of eastern part of the Corn Belt, um, but, you know, there's there's some folks who are going to have some good crops this year, It's it, but it's unfortunate because there's you know, other people who are not, that's not going to be the case, so mm-hmm. I'm not surprised to hear you say that you've seen a pretty good crop improvement there in western western illinois in the last week or so yeah and we know there are there are those wet spots out there there's some big holes probably in a lot of those fields things like that but it's it's amazing um how much it started catching up now i guess we'll be monitoring that race throughout the summer to see if it catches up from the from the slow start or not uh but we know there's those acres that just did not get planted and There's still that question around how many of those acres are there. USDA is saying over 10 million. Uh, we're still trying to get a handle on that, aren't we? Yeah, we are. And, I, I mean, we've talked, we've kind of used a number on the corn side, about 7.4 million acres of corn that didn't get planted. We think the, the beans that didn't get planted are probably minimal, uh, more like what we've seen the last three or four years of, you know, three or 400,000 acres of beans that didn't get planted. So, you know, the 10 million acres that USDA has out there doesn't surprise me. Um, you know, it's, it, I've used the word, I've used this kind of analogy this year, is that everyone wants to say, well, if there's 10 million acres, there can't be that many corn acres. And, and I said, well, 2 plus 2 is not going to equal, is going to equal 5 this year, because you know as well as I do is that you can, you can claim to prevent plant acres, but you can still plan on it after the prevent plant date, but you're going to take a haircut on your, on your benefits. But so that that's why it's not two plus two is going to equal five this year, not four. So, you know, that is going to have an impact, obviously. And I, as we've talked previously, you know, that those acreage numbers are going to change again once we get to August. Uh, corn numbers are probably corn acres will probably come down. Bean acres will probably come up a little bit from that low 80 million bushel or 80 million acre number. And so that and, and, and I've said all along. We're going to argue about planted acres all year and maybe even beyond the August report. You know, we know that corn acres that got in late, 
may not reach maturity before the first frost, probably become silage acres. So then we get to debate over what's harvested acres going to be. Will it be, you know, the typical 92 or above 92 percent? Probably not. And then it's, it's, I hate to say it, but it, it, in a sense, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a crapshoot as to what yield is going to be this year. And yields are going to be all over the place this year because of what you just said of, of holes in the field, um, acres that didn't get planted. Um, acres that did get planted in, in poor conditions that have had tough a tough go getting started, you know, looking better now. But you know, it's just we got planted so late, and as you know, and all of our agronomy courses told us that, you know, you get planted after a certain date, you start losing potential yield, and so I think that's the thing that who knows what that's going to be, and I think it's a really tough game to predict yield right now. Right, and and do we catch harder? think about this after the spring we've had and all the wet weather but in some areas can they catch some rains when they need them here uh, the rest of the growing season we're talking with steve nicholson with robo agrofinance steve we know we don't know how much but we know we're going to be looking at reduced production this year because of the acres not planted and reduced yields on those acres that are planted but is that enough to make a significant dent in the stocks situation uh Overall, let's look first of all at soybeans because that was the big issue. We already had a lot of soybeans coming into this year. Will reduce production this year put much of a dent in that? I don't think so. I think that's the first. That's probably the easier question for me to answer. I did some back of the envelope numbers. You know, looking at well, wonder if we reduced acres, and I started reducing you know a million acres of planted acres on beans. Okay, okay, let's start taking stocks off a little bit, but not very much. And so I started doing 2 million acres at a time, and I got up to 12 million acres before I even was able to cut ending stocks in half. So you're still talking four and 500 million bushels ending stocks on beans, which is going to help, but it's still an awfully big number of beans that we have. So, you know, and, and we need to, and, you know, yield on beans. Is, if we think corn is tough to predict right now, beans are even worse, even in a good year. Um, so I think it's going to be difficult to get to a position where we have a significant number of bean reduction in bean yield or bean production, let's put it that way, that's going to have an impact on any stocks that's really going to make prices go up on beans. That, to me, that's, I won't, that's, and I'll probably be made a liar for saying that because it's just, you know, how crops tend to make you, make you pretty humble pretty fast, but I think it's going to be difficult with beans to see a significant impact on ending stocks, um, which will impact price, uh, you know, to the upside a lot. Without corn? Without corn. Now, corn, and, and this is where the debate will become, is how much corn do we lose? And, and there's a lot of different ways to look at it. If, if you do look at, let's say you take USDA's number, and take the June number, and let's, let's look at that June number because that we'll see tomorrow what that looks like. Um, and you take those numbers, you know that gets a you can get a situation where you get a pretty significant drop in corn production, which drops gets gets corn ending stocks around that billion bushel number, and that's where you see prices get a pr- pretty high pretty fast. Now, a lot of people are kind of aiming at that two point one point four. 1.5 billion areas that we lose, we lose enough production that we're going to lose 500 to 600 million bushels off that ending stocks and gets us in that kind of one, as I say, 1.4 to 1.5 area. That still gets us in, you know, December futures trading really kind of in at the, you know, they're trading at the low end of the range they are right now in that 425, 475 area. So 
we're trading in an area where the market thinks we're probably going to go right now, and it gives you an idea what, they're think, what they think production will be and what ending stocks will be once all said and done. But if we start to see, you know, acreage slip even more, um, you know, we've got numbers probably looking at acreage to slip back in that, you know, 86 million bushel or million acre area. You start to get 166 bushel corn like USDA has in their was in their balance sheet right now. Then you do get back to that billion bushel area, which gets prices a little higher than, you know, gets prices up above four, five dollars for a period of time. No, so we'll watch that. Yeah. Yeah. Before, before we go any further and talk about tomorrow, uh, wheat harvest underway. Uh, what do you see yeah. as your your outlook there? Yeah, it, and it's the market has kind of kind of given us a foreshadow. Has been foreshadowing that for quite some time, and that's and that's part of the reason why the market's looking at all the rain for corn, thinking well, we got all this rain on bean or on wheat, and you couldn't get it planted, and it had a tough tough winter, and you still got record, you know, seeing a huge acreage huge yields on wheat across hard red and winter uh, wheat area, or soft red winter and hard red winter wheat areas. Um, so that's probably going to keep prices on the defensive in the wheat market. Now, the base is going to do a lot, of, uh, a lot of work in wheat because you're not getting the protein premium. So if you have high-protein wheat or higher, higher protein wheat than the average, you're going to be rewarded for that because the market's looking for that this year because it doesn't have it. And so that's where the opportunity is for the wheat producer if he's got good protein high-protein wheat to, to market. Okay, before we let you go, numbers coming out tomorrow, what should we watch for? What are you going to focus on? Yep, uh, obviously focus, first of all, does the, does, does the world board adopt the acreage number? I think there are people in the market who think they won't do that. I'm not in that camp. You know, if you've got the survey, why wouldn't you adopt those numbers and put in? Um, will they change the, the, the yield? I, I don't think they will, but I'll be watching planted corn acres, corn yield and obviously watch the ending stocks number because those would be the most important things. That's what's leading the market is corn right now. Obviously pay attention to beans if they make any adjustments in the beans and what that does, uh, but I think there's a lot of people you know, skeptical of that acreage number. Uh, I'm sure there are people on the world board skeptical of that number, but I think it's going to be hard for USDA to just say, oh, well, we don't believe the June number, so we're going to pick our own number now. Um, that, that would be a pretty radical move, I would think, for USA to do. But, you know, they made a big adjustment in June, and so they, you know, they may do that again. So I, I think it's, it's, it's anyone's guess now what will happen tomorrow. But be prepared for probably some fireworks after that report um, and be ready. And if you're needing to make some marketing decisions, that may be your opportunity to do it at that point because it's like we've talked all along. You're managing the margins, and let's keep that in mind. All right, Steve. We'll see what those numbers are tomorrow. Thank you very much. Thanks, Mike. Good to talk to you as always. Take care. Take care. Steve Nicholson, Grain and Oil Seeds Analyst for Robo AgriFinance. Up next, we talk with University of Illinois Ag Economist Scott Irwin right here on AOA. Stay with us. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. 
I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Wake up and text. Text and eat. Text and catch the bus. Text and miss your stop. Wait, 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 wait. Text and be late to work. Sorry, I'm late. Text and work. Text and pretend to work. Text and act surprised when someone calls you out for not working. <clears throat> Who, me? Text and meet up with a friend you haven't seen in forever. Hi. Oh, hey. Text and complain that they're on their phone the whole time. <sighs> Text and listen to them complain that you're on your phone the whole time. Ugh. Text and whatever. But when you get behind the wheel, give your phone to a passenger. Put it in the glove box. Just don't text and drive. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A public service announcement brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Bad theater seats, cheap Halloween masks, my apartment, all things with obstructed views. Add to these large trucks and buses. 18-wheelers and large buses have big blind spots, and like my apartment, they don't always have the best view. Bus and truck drivers deal with blind spots around the entire vehicle. Always take care not to ride alongside or too close behind them. Our roads, our safety. Learn more at sharetheroadsafely.gov. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture from the American Ag Network. We're excited to explore the topics that make a difference to agriculture. The Farm Bill, immigration reform, reducing regulations, trade, new technology, as well as infrastructure and health care. Through the year, Adams on Agriculture will originate on location from several major national meetings and events. Subscribe to the show's podcast at AmericanAgNetwork.com. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture from the American Ag Network. You may not realize how important three letters can be. For a patient who needs type A, B, or O blood, these letters can mean life. But there simply aren't enough people giving blood. Every two seconds, someone in the U.S. needs it. But only about 3% of the population donates. Without more donors, hospitals may not have the blood needed to save lives. That's why the American Red Cross needs people to help restore the A's, B's, and O's that are depleting each day. When you make your appointment to donate blood at redcrossblood.org forward slash missing types, you can help give strength to kids, parents, and grandparents who face life and death challenges. From cancer patients to accident survivors, Waiting for critical surgeries, your generosity can give someone more life. Don't wait until the letters A, B, and O are missing from hospital shelves. You are the missing type patients need. Visit redcrossblood.org forward slash missing types or call 1-800-RED-CROSS to make your donation appointment today. The Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council present the story of Cynthia and Ed. 
My mother was always very active and independent, and she was familiar with her neighborhood. But one day, out of the blue, she stopped at the stop sign for much longer than usual. And uh, she didn't know whether she should go forward or, or turn or just stay at the stop sign. She wasn't even really sure where she was at. She was very concerned. It was very unsettling for her. It's important for you to talk to someone about it, to bring the family in on it. I felt so much better after my son told me, Mom, I don't want you to worry or be afraid. I'll be there for you and we'll figure it out. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash ourstories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. A law firm representing small U.S. refineries is asking EPA to keep refiners' applications for waivers from the RFS secret from the Department of Agriculture, arguing that the petitions include confidential business information. This, of course, on the heels of some GOP senators representing oil interests and oil uh, constituencies in their states saying that uh, Secretary Purdue should stay out of uh, this whole issue of small refinery exemptions. Let's talk about it with Scott Irwin, University of Illinois Ag Economist. Uh, Scott, what do you make of uh, this latest uh, volley in this back and forth battle? Well, I think that they're just uh, fronts in the ongoing RFS political war uh, that's really about whether refiners are going to be able to maintain control of the implementation of the RFS. And the announced White House review of SRE policy in the uh, EPA decision-making is really what has prompted all of the rather extreme statements that the uh, refining groups are making. Yeah, when they come out and say, we want these things kept secret, that makes you somewhat uh, question it right there, doesn't it? Well, it does. I mean, um, you know, can the data in those uh, petitions be that super secret proprietary that the Secretary of Agriculture of the United States, a cabinet-level official who's gone through unbelievable security checks, uh, just can't be trusted to take a look at that data. Come on. Uh, the, the, the general principle in the um, implementation of the RFS is that um, virtually on all matters that I can recall, uh, the Department of Energy and the uh, Department of Agriculture are regularly consulted. Now, the refiners are arguing because of this uh, confidential business information, or CBI, that this is different, that the uh, Clean Air Act uh, requires that this be kept absolutely secret because apparently, you know, these businesses would go 
uh, bust if somehow this data uh, was was let out. Which, of course, to I think any reasonable observer would ask, gosh, if you're making those kind of extreme arguments, you know, what really are you hiding in those applications? We have to ask that really hard question right now. Meanwhile, Scott, as uh, we've discussed here on this show, and you have done a lot of research and uh, and, and writing and uh, on this particular topic of how these exemptions are really impacting, hurting the biodiesel industry, and then you couple that with uh, not getting really any help in the RVO proposal for 2020, and the fact they still don't have the tax credit. Uh, this is really a tough time for the biodiesel industry. Um, absolutely. Well, it's a tough time for everybody in the biofuels industry. It's just kind of a different uh, level of toughness. You know, probably the ethanol industry is suffering uh, the most in terms of losses. Uh, biodiesel's kind of uh, small profits to break even right now. You know, the way I would put it in big picture terms, what the SREs have done, uh, it's surprising to most in terms of uh, E10. Uh, demand for ethanol. The SREs have had little, if any, impact. But the real cost of the ethanol industry is um, opportunities for growth in higher blends. Whatever those would be, the SREs have probably shut those off. And the vast bulk of the demand destruction, as you indicate, has fallen on the biodiesel industry. Do you think EPA will change uh, that proposal for those levels for RVOs for 2020? Uh, They're not set in stone yet. Do you anticipate any changes? Not without um, basically the Trump White House forcing the EPA to do it. Without it, I wouldn't expect any changes in the rulemaking that we just saw. Basically... The way I interpret that rulemaking is the U.S. refining industry, which is in the driver's seat in terms of the political decision-making on the um, RFS at the EPA, saying, sue me. We're going to make you sue me over every inch of territory for biofuels. And that's the, the situation that we find ourselves in. Were you surprised at all? with the uh, proposal by EPA on those levels for 2020? No. No, it was not. This, this is very close to what I expected uh, based on my assumption that at the present time, uh, the political appointees in the EPA are basically advocates for the U.S. refining industry when it comes to implementation of the RFS. So it really comes down to whether President Trump will uh, have the strong action to go with his strong words of support for the biofuels industry? That is the big question right now, because that is what it will take to overcome the clear policy direction coming out of the EPA in recent years on implementation of the RFS, the RVOs, SREs, everything. It will take President Trump saying, no, we're going to make a change. Uh, and uh, and I will say this, I would have said the chances of that looked until his trip to Iowa in recent months uh, close to zero, uh, but it's obvious that from the rather extreme 
actions that the uh, refiners are lobbying for in D.C. right now is that they are nervous about the possibility of President Trump actually doing that. Mm-hmm. Interesting. All right, Scott, as always, good to talk with you. Thank you. All right. Always my pleasure, Mike. University of Illinois Ag Economist Scott Irwin. That wraps it up for today. Hope you'll be with us again tomorrow right here on AOA Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Most of us like to be out in the sun. That's why sunscreen and other safety measures are key to protecting your skin from aging and cancer. The FDA recommends using a sunscreen with an SPF of 15 or higher. Also, look for broad spectrum on the label. That means both harmful ultraviolet A and B rays are blocked. Remember, SPF plus broad spectrum equal healthy fun in the sun. Visit www.fda.gov sunscreen for more information. A message from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Over the years, you've brought them into your home. You were prescribed opioids after the C-section and after dad's back injury. They helped when you were in pain, and you held on to them just in case. But did you know holding on to unused opioids puts your family at risk? Trouble with opioids can start at home with unused medicines, such as pills, patches, and syrups. You can remove the risk and protect your family. Find out how at www.fda.gov slash drug disposal. Sometimes life is wonderful, and sometimes it's not. Cherish the good, but always be prepared for life's challenges. At Private Healthcare, we provide the peace of mind you deserve. With Private Healthcare, you'll get the coverage you want and healthcare you need. If your employer doesn't supply healthcare coverage and you don't qualify for Medicare or Medicaid, you need to give us a call right now. Private healthcare is private health insurance for ages 65 and under with medical, dental, vision, and even prescription coverage. When life comes at you unexpectedly, you need to be ready, and health insurance is your financial safety net. If you're looking for health coverage at the best price and your annual household income is $35,000 or more, give us a call at 800-664-2612. That's 800-664-2612. 800-664-2612. 